Got to say for yourself. This is another Alpha Bonus Bonus from BungaCast, where we take your questions and comments and all the discussion that's been going on on the Patreon. Over the past, well, we've been remiss. So over the past two and a half months, we've got a big backlog, big backlog of stuff to get stuck into. Are you excited, George? Phil? Yeah, very much so. I mean, always these are good. excited, always excited we- to talk about about our listeners and to them and well, tell them. <laughs> We get all of these comments saying how bad we are at everything from podcasting to our political opinions to, well, I guess people aren't criticizing our kind of dress sense, but sometimes that's implied. Um, so yeah, it's good to it's good to engage with the uh, with the this audience. It's not true, George. Alex and I always criticize your dress sense. Your Silicon Valley sub Silicon Valley, you know, kind of CEO tech shirt, tech bro mm. shirt. You know, we're yeah. always criticizing. It's not even a shirt; it's t shirt. A Primark T-shirt, trying to be like a Meta boy in San Francisco, going to the office meta to code. Meta boy, <laughs> like you know. I, I thought that was a new a sexuality, me- and I was like, oh no, no, no. I it don't think a Meta boy a is new, a thing. It is Meta boy, spelled B-O-I. It's a new gender available on Facebook. Well, as long as it's got a, a, a snappy, you know, dress sense, clean, clean lines, grey T-shirt, black jeans. That's um, yeah, I will strongly consider. Anyway, um, enough uh, enough dress dress talk. We're um, going to be talking about, well, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Artificial intelligence, energy, why criticizing wokeness is boring, work, retirement, and time, the family, and of course, the new elite. Um, that's towards the end. So just you know, stick with us in, in case if you really want to hear us have a big row about who the new elite is and why you people on our Patreon are specifically the new elite and are in charge of the universe. And that's all to come. Um, so let's get actually cracking. All right. So from the last Alpha Bonus bonus in March, just one thing. Uh, Richard R. says, I would like you to exclusively respond to the comments I make where I don't sound like an idiot. Please and thank you. Well, Richard R. has made less of comments <laughs> over the past month um, and quite good ones. Um, so we're going to try to feature the... the no, you're, you're supposed to say that. And that's why we won't be responding to any of Richard R.'s comments. <laughs> um, yeah, right. In the rest of the episode. Lol. Um, lol. Right. So, um, the zone parts one and two with Quinn Slobodian. That's episode three three one and three three two. This is a very popular episode. Uh, not surprisingly, um, though John Rorden was not impressed. He said, "I can't believe this guy wrote a whole ass book to prove he's not a chud after his last book, um, which was on neoliberals, made him sound too chuddy. Decided instead to write a book that makes him sound like a 2016 Guardian column." To wash off the filth, very Owen Jones. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's unfair. It's just another aspect of capitalism. It's just one that the libs maybe like to critique, whereas the other one the libs don't like to critique. Anyway, um, some discussion about whether democracy, especially locally, can be a bulwark against capital. So Christopher uh, Christoph Esselin uh, challenges the notion that democracy is an antagonist to capitalism citing his native Switzerland. In the last 20 years, so far, every left-wing attempt, be it one additional week of holiday, 4,000 
$5 minimum salary, maximum salaries, more pensions, etc., have all been rejected by huge margins, over 60% voting no. This, combined with continued support for low taxes and limited regulation, makes Switzerland often the poster child for American right-wingers. Switzerland is a good case study to show that neoliberal capitalism and democracy can go hand in hand. Andrea compliments this by noting that both gun possession and local democratic deliberation, together with decentralized and low taxation in Switzerland, all trace their existence back to the origins and development of Swiss political independence. The long tradition in communal deliberation through village institutions managing common lands, this was done by a bourgeois head of the family, not by equal individuals. It didn't actually translate into any left-leaning positions during the 20th century. So when I hear about insurgent local autonomous democracy and recuperating pre-modern democratic traditions of ruling common land as solutions inherently opposition to capitalism, I want to scream. I think um, in t- you should probably take this one, Alex, because you are you are a resident Switzerland correspondent, right? You have uh, you have Barely. roots in this. Uh, Fortunately, have- based in Sao Paulo, but yes. You have a, a deep understanding of the Swiss soul. I mean, if it exists, uh, do Swiss people have souls? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so no, no comment on this. No, I guess um, you know. Do, do you have anything to say to stand up for this um, Swiss bashing? No, I mean, I think we should take the universal lessons from this. I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably right insofar as, um, I mean, it's only at the kind of you know nation state level where there's been. Um, you know, outcomes and policy choices, which have at least at some certain points, um, institutionalize some limitations to capital. Um, and, you know, obviously, that was greater in the kind of post-war era than it is now. But um, I think that's the only kind of level of governance, which has actually done anything. I'm always a little bit skeptical or left a little bit cold by by localism, to be honest, I mean, other than in as they concern, particularly local issues. So, um I think that's probably probably right as concerns local democracy. I just don't know, hmm. if, you know. Yeah, I guess I, I do think you know capital is it's a national has to be a national bulwark or a national contestation. I guess the, with reference to Switzerland specifically, I don't know if it means anything for or against Switzerland that they. I think it was the, like one of the last places to to uh, grant women the the right to vote as late as nineteen seventy one. So. I mean, that's a, you know, how um, I guess it has to be a slightly constrained form of democracy if it's if if that um, kind of equal suffrage is, is so late in coming. But no, I think the I thought it was a good a good episode and it is a good, um, as I said at the time in the discussion of the of the of the book, this idea that zones are almost the exception that proves the rule like the there is something in this like we are too often ignore the kind of those parts which seem to be i don't know seem to not fit into the to the narrative of of global capitalism and i think the book makes a good point whether it's anti-chuddy or not um about the importance of these zones so yeah i am i think the the problem is i think it's more conceptualizing democracy and capital or capitalism as things that are kind of external to each other rather than things that are mutually implicate each other. Um, And the fact that, you know, I think also there is a tendency on the left to scorn democracy when it doesn't deliver 
you know, and leftists fail to convince other people of their argument. And, you know, that's also been, were of their case. And that's also been a consistent, you know, kind of um, problem for the left as well. My view is generally, if you're failing to convince majorities, then that speaks to the weakness of your own argument rather than to the, rather than to, you know, the dereliction or the waywardness of those, um, of the masses, as it were. But nonetheless, I mean, the point, you know, the point remains, I think, that um, these are, it's it's more that we're talking about contradictions that are internal to capitalist society. So the idea that democracy on the one hand is this thing and capital on the other is this thing, and that efforts to use kind of, you know, you put one on top of the other in order to block one or the other, you know, I mean, that would be, I think, you know, that's too crude a uh, model for understanding the relationship. And while, um, you know, while I think uh, John John O'Rourden's comment is um, very, uh, very sharp on the nose, um, you know, nonetheless, it's, uh, you know, I think it's, um, it's a, it's a really good book. And the point about the zone and how the zone has been used to forge a new era of global capitalism in the last quarter of the 20th century, it's, an important insight into that process, but also more to the point, um, you know, something that Quinn said, uh, which is very, which I think is also crucial in the debate, was when he said the World Economic Forum and the globalists have less influence now than they have had for a long time, and that's kind of ironic given the fact that you know the WEF has become the kind of center point of so much, um, both you know I'd say populist as well as more fringe kind of. Um, skepticism, suspicion, and um, kind of uh, you well, know, kind paranoia, of, even yeah, even paranoia, yeah. Despite the fact that they're very, you know, they like he said, you know, they're kind of they're not at all in charge, and so I think that in it, you know, in itself is a kind of um, you know needs to be uh, flagged up and is an important point. There is nobody in charge. Yeah, indeed. Um... So uh, Norman Finkelstein in episode three three four, um, he's become a almost kind of legendary, controversial figure. I don't know, um, and maybe suitably, this his appearance on Bungocast split opinion. Um, Andrew Mountford said he enjoyed listening to Norm, but was disappointed that there was no discussion of the weaponization of racism against Corbyn in the UK, something which Bunga continues to avoid or downplay, but was very significant in the attacks on the left, and something which Norm has spoken against in the past, though maybe not in this book in question. Um, FTC says, I found this conversation disappointing. It's not that I disagreed with a lot of what he was saying, but I was hoping for something new or a fresh angle. People have been doing these critiques of wokeness for at least the last five years, and there was nothing new here. There was too much complaint about how people aren't real radicals anymore and a lack of deeper analysis or insight, either into the material foundations of contemporary politics or their intellectual origins. Yeah. I wanted maybe to mm. tackle the Corbynism thing. So I don't think we've um I don't think we've avoided it. I think we I mean uh, maybe maybe the other two will disagree with me. Um but I think we kind of had the tacit understanding that it was less important in explaining the failure of Corbynism um than you know has generally been held on the left. Corbynism failed for its own problems not because it was um mugged by you know, such a well-organized attempt to sabotage it from the outside, I think. That is the kind of the main point. And there is a broader anti-Semitism on the British left, but that it's misconceived. It's not the anti-Semitism of the past in the sense of, um, 
you know, kind of uh, that physical hatred for Jews, but rather skepticism, um, paranoia and suspicion about the influence of um, of uh, an Israel lobby on national politics. And it's a weird inversion of traditional anti-Semitism. You know, traditional anti-Semitism kind of thought that the Jews were suspect, a suspect minority. There, it was their allegiance to the nation that was suspect, that they didn't fit in with the nation. Whereas now in our kind of... Um, globalist or post-globalist era, anti-Semitism takes the form of a, saying the Jews are too national. It's their allegiance to a, to this um, nation state, the sovereign nation state that defends its interests so ruthlessly, Israel, that makes them suspect. And so I think the, um, you know, there is an anti-Semitism on the British left. Um, I don't think that it takes the kind of traditional form of anti-Semitism, and that confuses, I think, both its, uh, you know, its opponents as much as um, people on the British left themselves. But I'd stick by the original point that I simply don't think that um, Corbynism was laid low by this well-organized attempt to weaponize, you know, kind of to uh, weaponize anti-Semitism against Corbyn. Yeah, it was an internal contradiction <clears throat> that sunk it, not an external enemy with reference to, to Corbyn. Um, but I well, think the, the point... Oh, sorry, I had a point on the other question. So if you want to continue on well, Corbyn... No, just on the, Alex, yeah, I think, I mean, I, the left certainly overstates the extent to which it was taken down by dirty dealings, um, or only that, but it was certainly a part. But I think it's internal to it, right? In the sense that Corbynism also didn't steal itself to the fact that the bulk of the Labour Party, of the institution of the Labour Party, were their political enemies, not just kind of wayward people they had to win over. Um, and so I think that I think that was sort of part of Corbynism's problem um, in kind of just, you know, not really seize, understanding the kind of hard politics that would need to go on to seize control of the Labour no, Party if I it think, was to do that. No, I disagree. Um, so, so yeah, they, because I think, and I think the, you know, the anti-Semitism we thing, like, it's again one of the one of these things where the anti—they could have been. There is an anti-Semitism on the British left, and at the same time, it was complete nonsense what they threw at Corbyn with these anti-Semitism yeah. charges. So you know, it, it, it I think I mean those both of those things are true, right? That there was that it was kind of instrumentally exploited. Like I say, that Corbynism is no more. I don't think he's personally kind of anti-Semitic towards Jews, as far as I can tell. Obviously, I don't personally know him. Um, I don't think he's any more or less anti-Semitic than the kind of wider anti-Semitism on the British left. And I should say in British politics more generally, the kind of the right wing affinity for Israel on the British right also has its own kind of anti-Semitic tropes in the kind of stereotypes and assumptions that it makes about Jews. Um, but notwithstanding that, I disagree with this take. And we've had this argument before about, you know, kind of um, when the left cast, the radical left casts itself as naive and innocent compared to these ruthless pragmatists. Um, it's always an excuse, you know, so they it's a, it's an account, a retrospective account of defeat where they try to kind of salvage some sense of moral rectitude by saying we were too we were too sweet and innocent for this terrible world, and now we. I don't withdraw. think that salvages anything. That's incredibly damning. Now we withdraw. We withdraw to the NGOs and we go back to the academy and so on. It's the way in which they cover their retreat. The real the real tension was with the British people, with British voters. It wasn't the tension with the Starmerites or the Blairites. The real tension was with the British people that they were not trusted 
by the majority of the British people and he turned against them and they showed their contempt for them in the 2019 election when they said they weren't going to respect their vote. And we've had this debate before. I just don't accept this this idea that the left is too sweet and innocent for the world. They were, you know, they were ruthless operators themselves. The difference was that their operations shattered on the uh, votes of the majority in 2019. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the analysis of like how Starmer <clears throat> came to be uh, Labour leader, there's a lot of similar sort of he outmaneuvered all the Corbyn Corbynite explanation is he outmaneuvered us. He kind of this, you know, he was too too smart. We were too um, pure. So I think I probably would tend to be more on on Phil's um, side of this one. But what I did want to say um, about FDC's uh, comment was I think there is. Like I think Norm's critique of um of of you know all the thinkers that he talks about and you know going into the textual detail that's all very useful. But I think what he or a question he didn't really answer that I I would sort of raise is why does this appeal? Like what is you know it's almost like the sort of that sort of uh, new atheism. Like look at these bad ideas. Why do these people have these kind of these stupid bad ideas well well maybe they're not stupid bad ideas maybe there is a reason why people find these things that you disagree with useful or helpful or benefit them in some way and i think he didn't really answer that question like why does this appeal if it's if you can go through and kind of intellectually take it apart um what is the appeal of wokeness what is the appeal of all of these ideas and i think if he'd you know that's more of a i guess a political sociological critique than a logical one perhaps but I think that's that sort of part that needs to be part of the, you know, any kind of overarching um, analysis, because otherwise it is just complaining people aren't real radicals anymore. They're kind of they can't get their head around things. Um, But actually, there might be a group whose interests are served by having these ideas potentially. But um, no, still a good discussion, though. So moving on, um, artificial intelligence and the end of the end of history, um, episode three, three, five. Graham Harrison, I think quite usefully, urges us to beware the fetish of thinking of tech as a discrete agency that tech does things by itself. Um, And he gives the example of biotech that remakes the nature of farm work for smallholders and enhances the power of agricultural corporations. (laughs) Smart devices heavily push people to provide content for free to rentier social media programs and perform labor for free to service providers. Fintech deploys legal force and surveillance to generate new structures of indebtedness upon labor and so on. Um, the point being here about being um, about social relations being the determining factor, not the technology in and of itself. Um, so I guess in our conversations about this, I don't think we were guilty of it um, myself, but um, it's always something to kind of bear in mind, I think, in, in kind of going in maybe even in just in the language that you use, where you're saying, you know, the tech is doing this versus um, actually, no, it's... Um, you know, there's kind of social forces or powerful actors who shape social relations in such a way to make them adequate to the technology. The technology is often a handmaiden to these transformations. Um, Steve Bobrick says, a quick note on Alex's idea that we'll have a very complete record of life uh, in 2023 in 50 years. This was my comment that I made kind of offhand about, um, you know, archaeologists and historians of the future will have this huge mass of data, information, and artifacts um, to dig up you know, because we, we're all of our conversations are written down or in recorded voice messages um, or video or whatever. Steve says, actually, I don't think we can take this for granted. We're relying on these, uh, re- we're relying for these rich, accessible, permanent archives on corporations 
who've already shown they have no commercial interest in preserving them. The social media companies, in particular, explicitly impede archiving efforts. The content is by definition fugitive, and it's stored on media within 10 to 30 years of useful life, after which it must be renewed. If there's anything left at all in 2073, I'll be surprised. Have you tried searching for a 2010 blog post lately? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I stand I stand corrected. I think unless efforts yeah, are made I like think... archive.org, I think this stuff all kind of disappears. You might say that's, that's for right. the better, but it's maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. No, there's some debate. There's been some debate on this is the, you know, the internet is going to basically it's over. You know, the internet as we've known it is over. It's going to be inundated with ads, um, having to see, you know, all these moronic kind of GDPR requirements now imposed by the European Union. And so it's just going to be the the ease and convenience that we're used to will gradually be kind of uh, chiseled away. And I expect that'll be part of the, you know, part of memory holding on the internet as well. You can imagine a situation where people are kind of trading uh, cassette versions of old Bungacast episodes and kind of, you know, through underground networks because they've been lost um, from the internet and, you know, potentially outlawed for being just too too correct, too subversive, <laughs> too, too right. Um, yeah, so I guess, you, like you know. Bunga. Yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe that's, that's what it will take is people taking it on their own uh, initiative to download have it, very make particular CDs, slices make cds people burn cds of bunk your favorite bunker episodes no mini discs it's technology cyclical it's coming back mini discs coming back you heard it first All right, so uh, moving on, uh, there were a few comments, but quite a lot of uh, likes um, and, and appreciation for episode 337, Nigeria Rising Downwards with Said Husseini. Uh, Blake commented, I love these country-specific episodes. Very nice to get some background on Peter O.B. as well, because you see him on social media nonstop. I always get the sense that he was just some Igbo patronage politician. And so it seems to have proved. Anyway, yes, uh, we know you like the country-specific episodes. We're trying to do more, um, and we will continue to try to do more. Uh, moving on, episode 338, The Energy Theory of Everything, featuring Matt Huber, also very popular this episode. Um, what is politics um, on Twitter going in touch to say that he thought Huber is wrong in the sense that Marx did very much change his mind on peasant communes as a potential basis for socialism, as against the Western model. He wrote a lot on this. Um, but he also contends that uh, Saito, who we discussed in um, in the episode, who is the author responsible for degrowth communism and those sorts of ideas, which he bases uh, his argument a lot on Marx's very late writings, um, saying that, you know, maybe these Russian peasant communes could be a basis for socialism. Um, what is politics contends that, in fact, Saito is wrong in that Marx was talking about the specific conditions of Russia in the 1870s, as opposed to those in Western Europe, which capital was based on, and the specific path to socialism in Russia. This has nothing to do with a quote-unquote degrowth economy in the 21st century world, unless we're talking about third world countries with overwhelming peasant populations with a living tradition of communal farming. And just as an aside, I think there's very, very few of those nowadays anyway. Uh, Marx's change of ideas is more important for understanding why the Russian Revolution turned out the way it did, 
then in charting a path for our own future. Interestingly, Engels and Plekhanov, the father of Russian Marxism, buried Marx's writing on the subject because they thought it was stupid. Buried. What did I say? You said buried. That's the same word. Yeah, it's pronounced buried anyway. Um, Stop wasting yeah, Hegelian and uh, what's the other one? Hobbesian and all this bullshit that you say. Don't I'm not listening to you. Phil, do you have something in- intelligent yes, to contribute? Yes, I have something to say, which is I don't really buy all this. I mean, it's this debate that kind of erupts occasionally back and forth about Marx's views on the um, peasant communes in Russia and whether they offered the basis for the... Um, you know, for some kind of uh, leap into socialism for um, for Russia. And I don't, they always seem to me very weak and unconvincing, to be honest. It doesn't get away from the fact that, you know, at the centerpiece was um, Marx's claim. Marx's claims are predicated on industrial capitalism. Um, and insofar as he considered the peasant commune, it was, you know, the case of... Um, attentiveness to national history and context rather than... Um, undercutting the centrality of industrialism to you know the um the argument that he was advancing about socialism so i'm always left a bit i'm always yeah skeptical so i mean the point is right the point that that what is politics is making is is correct i think because we can't really know what marx was thinking of course it's just kind of one mention in the grundries kind of and so it's not really, or in a letter actually, late in life. So we can't know. But I think the important point, which he underscores, I think it's correct, is that in any case, even if it were true that Marx believed that there was a path to socialism via Russian peasant communes, there are no peasant communes anywhere in the world today, basically. So it's it's stupid to even discuss it. Um, and yeah. Saito's use of it is um, is really specious. Yeah, specious it's pronounced actually. But yeah, I think no. that's right. I think that's Look, um, let people say words however they want to say those words. Let a thousand fo- flowers bloom or whatever. I'm bloom. just making I'm making the case against Marx being a kind of a proto Maoist avant la lettre, and that and also I'm saying that we shouldn't let a thousand flowers bloom, but that we should like stick to correct pronunciation. We should indeed. We should indeed. Um, anyway, uh, Eli S says. Um, comments on a sort of catchphrase of this episode on energy about uh, of needing a left that goes from blocking to building, particularly with regard to energy infrastructure, but really that would goes well beyond this as well. Um, and I think this is interesting. I just want to make a point as an aside. The first uh, print issue of Damage magazine concerns precisely this idea of building big things, um, of reorienting the left towards um, big projects some, and not some great away from sort of nimbyish, great contributors, including um, one GH. Um, yeah. Um, Eli uh, asks, is a, this is a different Eli, I think. Uh, anyway, ask, is a blocking from building situation really that new to the left? I had not really thought that anyone outside the Trente Glorieuse in the Anglo world or Western Europe really assumed there was a capitalist growth machine that would just keep pumping out development for us socialists to simply stand there and expropriate. Blocking a few bad things was necessary as necessary. Um, have socialist movements not always aimed at a socialist mode of production rather than a mode of blocking or transfer payments or of charity? If all my historical impressions are not correct, then it brings up a question. When did the left forget how to be anything other than administrators of transfer payments? Um, I think this is interesting. I mean, I think it, I do think that there 
is from the new left onwards, there was a sort of a, a tacit um, or and sometimes explicit, you know, retreat from production and questions of production um, towards questions of alienation. I think this is well established um, and widely discussed. And in doing so, I think there was a sense that, well, growth is always going to continue. There, the capitalist growth machine will continue and we can turn to questions of um, of being, of relational, of relationality, of of, of identity, and and so on. Um, except that that growth machine came to a juddering halt and has done, you know, broadly speaking, on a global level over the past, um, you know, fifteen years, and indeed probably longer, a kind of longer term stagnation. And so I think that's that's why there needs to be a return to building big things, and for the left to take responsibility for this because no one else is. Um, and I, yeah. George. I mean, I don't think the left can take responsibility for this because the not the current well, left, the, but I mean, well, or I mean, it would have to be a very, very different approach. The it makes me think of David Edgerton's book and the episode we did with him, where this idea of like building at least a British state, this kind of you know, what 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 was this? Um, <clears throat> what were the terms of this? It was primarily a, a national project, um, or in many ways a national project. So that would be a big change for the contemporary left to, to move to this kind of, <clears throat> I guess, this like em- embrace of production at a national level. It seems like a long, a long way away from that. Right. No, indeed. Um, but anyway, no one else is pushing for that either. So um, Eli A, a different Eli says, I agree with the orientation of Matt Hoover's politics and his disdain for degrowthers and a push for, pro, for a pro-abundance environmental movement. But I wish you would have pushed him on a point I believe Phil has made in the past, that climate change is not inherently a fundamental threat to capitalism, and that there is no built-in reason for climate politics to be left-wing or socialist. To the dismay of many leftists, capitalist states appear more than able to rise up to the challenge posed by climate change, as evidenced by the Inflation Reduction Act being forecasted by Goldman Sachs to amount to over $1 trillion in climate spending. It appears to me that climate change is a total dead end for left politics because climate change is one of the few issues that is actually a core technical problem with technical solutions. Well, Phil, he mentions you, so go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I would. I tend I agree with the thrust of what Eli A is saying here. Um, I disagree. I mean, I don't think it's so much. I don't think the issue is so much that it's a tech, you know, purely a technical problem with technical solutions. It's more that it's. Um, it's understanding how it's cast, I think, um, you know, so, and it's the fact that it's um, deployed by the left to avoid um, addressing the social problem and, or the social question and the political question. Um, and at the same time that it's kind of the emergency paradigm of politics, um, the crisis that justifies kind of extreme measures that can't be, you know, can't they can't, for which you can't find justification otherwise. So I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's just a technical problem with a small, you know, kind of that can be technocratically fixed. I think in principle, you know, like um, it does, you know, it kind of does rise or give rise to fundamental political questions of, um, you know, international competition, industrialization, deindustrialization. Um, the distribution of the benefits of growth, um, and all of those are very ultimately very profoundly political questions. Yeah, I think there's also something about why is it so widespread, and what's what's the appeal of 
of you know climate climate change politics and i think on the one hand it is a symptom of a, a very pessimistic catastrophist global mood um but i keep going back to this you know this point james hartfield makes in green capitalism which is it is fundamentally the ideology of capitalism in retreat from production and that's what we see across you know large swathes of the globe but not the whole globe um and so there is a you know that's a that's a that's a tension there's a contradiction there between contemporary kind of green capitalism um in the west and you know more productive models so yeah i think there's a i i don't think there's a a good or simple like solution to this i guess we've talked a lot about like what are the um what's the correct orientation to 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 kind of climate change or to green politics and i think the the episode with um with matt hooper was was you know a good a good sort of starting point but i think we need to have like more discussions on this definitely in this podcast because i i mean that book that i mentioned is now 15 years old and you know in that time green you know green politics has kind of got like more and more mainstream um so i think if you wanted to predict 15 years hence it will be even more so so i think getting a bit more um clear on some of this stuff would be extremely useful yeah and i I mean matt's very serious in trying to sketch out what a non-green if you want to put it this way um non-green and promethean climate politics would actually look like and one which is you know working class politics um one based on kind of building out stuff except that building out stuff which is you know low carbon emissions but you know it's it's very much a, a kind of a productivist sort of vision so um you know i think there's um oceans between these different um you know environment quote unquote environmental visions um on to episode 340 341 how to grow backbone featuring russell jacoby uh john rorden comments on um the way that um intellectuals have become de-radicalized have become domesticated and so on Uh, very few of the leading lights of 19th and 20th century marxism and socialism were employed academics but were normally graduates um, when they wrote their great academic texts the ones that got a lot done tended to involve themselves with parties forcing them to address their ideas to a really existing sample of the population academia detached from this process just excuse me i'm going to retake that academia detached from this process just preserves a ghost which goes some way to explaining socialism's revival as a statist and conformist middle-class phenomenon podcasts might emulate the process a bit but in an extremely limited and cliquey way well that's obviously not true so podcasts do not emulate it in a cliquey way podcasts are in fact the um you know the kind of the vanguard of uh I can't do it with a straight face. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> anyway, move on to the let's, next let's question. Let's move on. Um, but yeah, basically all of Russell Jacobi or a great part of it, uh, of his oeuvre is dedicated to, um, in fact, to, to very much this point. Uh, Mathieu Dube says, very good. The problem if socialists don't allow themselves to dream of another world, people who think another world is impossible will go, see, even you don't believe it's possible. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Iro Kalogeropolo, excuse me for that, uh, says it was a bit of an underwhelming interview, this one. I found his criticism of young people demonstrating against pension reform in France as a sign of a lack of vision for the future and to be rather tone deaf. To me, um, the protests in France were a sign of intergenerational solidarity. And in fact, 
that there is a belief in the future, if not a clear vision. It's a sign of the belief that we will actually live to get old, and we should not suffer when that time comes, but rather be relieved of the burden of work. It's a mobilization completely absent in any other country of Central and Northern Europe, where the overwhelming consensus seems to be just work till death. Um, in Northern Europe, the solution to aging is closer to euthanasia. Well, yeah. Uh, Richard R. compliments uh, in response by saying, I also found this aspect rather disappointing. And Alex moving the interview in the direction of anti-work shows how narrow the thinking is here. Yes, pension reform is a small ask, but the fact that it faces such intense resistance demonstrates that it is, in fact, an important issue. To say that pension reform is on a spectrum with anti-work communism is laughable, but maybe not entirely wrong. Sometime last year, anti-work communism was a pipe dream that showed how unserious its proponents were, at least in part, for dreaming too big, if Hegland, among others, is right that free time is essential to a socialist vision. Then what is the right amount? On the account given to us by the Bunga Boys, basically none. Let me just quickly respond to Richard R. Because I think I um, mis- he has mischaracterized what I said, or maybe I have allowed myself to um, to be misunderstood. Um, I didn't mean to say that the pension reform was something not to be defended, or that it in some way reflects a desire for retirement. Um, what I have been critical of, and I think through that episode was talking about a sort of utopia of resignation, which is that in certain anti-work ideas, and I don't mean necessarily the more theoretically elaborated anti-work communism ideas, but the more spontaneous um, kind of rejection of work, as you see in like the, the huge Reddit form, um, our anti-work, a, a very individualistic withdrawal um, from the world of work and a settling for less um, and no real idea of taking power or reshaping society. And so that's what I mean about the kind of post-work um, utopia of resignation, one which also hopes that kind of UBI comes along and you can just kind of carry on your life um, more or less as it is, but with more free time um, and the government will provide for you. And we've discussed for a number of reasons why that idea is, is kind of self-contradictory um, and unrealistic. But um, but anyway, I, I don't mean, I wasn't being critical of the um, those protesting Macron's proposed pension reform. I'm a bit torn. I mean, I, you know, I think far be it for me to, uh, you know, to criticize the, um, the pension protesters, because in many ways, I, you know, just the sheer kind of, um, I think it's hard to question that degree of uh, sustained um, opposition to a government, the popularity of the protest, you know, the intensity and bitterness of it seems to me to speak to genuine feeling that can't be kind of um, written off as uh, just so much kind of mis, you know, misplaced um, and political misunderstanding. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, if we're, I, you know, I agree with, uh, I think I'd be I'm sympathetic to Russell Jacobi's point in as much as it does speak to a certain kind of, uh, you know, a certain kind of political primitivism on the European left, on the French left, that it's about the the inability to think about political powers reshaping society, but rather still kind of um, still stuck in this defensive posture of defending, you know, defending the remnants of the generous post-war welfare states, which isn't to say they shouldn't be defended, but it does speak to you know, it does speak to political limits, I suppose. Um, and I think at the same time, you know, Jacobi could be criticised for, 
um, you know, I mean, uh, at a certain degree, some of these political protests at the moment, um, they spark off over, you know, over seemingly things which don't seem to be connected. Um, but then they catalyze, you know, larger grievances, um, you know, not un, in some ways, not unlike Brexit, a kind of a plebiscite over a tremendously boring bureaucratic regional organization, which everyone actually despised, turned into this tremendous um, political moment in the life of uh, in the life of uh, Britain and wide the wide, you know, and the wider world in Europe. So anyway, it's only to say, I think, you know, you have to be it's important to keep in mind the different dimensions of these political eruptions. All right, next. Uh, why do you hate your parents? This is the episode with Amber Lee Frost. Maybe don't abolish the family, number 342. Uh, Nina Power, the philosopher Nina Power, <laughs> uh, comments, uh, thank you all for covering this so thoughtfully and good to hear Amber on this family abolition is just the left-branded defense of capitalist processes of enclosure, exploitation, and commodification, already far advanced. Mathieu Dub says, uh, there's an expression in French, fuite en avant, meaning running away to the future. I find that all these abolish XYZ are just that. Where are the kids going to go if we abolish the family? Do we want the bourgeois state to grab the babies from their mothers at birth and put them in a sort of permanent boarding school? There's no social structures that could handle an abolition of family ethically. The left constantly sloganeers about abolishing this or that instead of doing the thankless job of building working class organizations that could eventually challenge the bourgeois regime and take over these tasks. Same applies to abolishing prisons. How would we actually, uh, how would the exact actually existing society deal with an influx of hardened criminals? I think that's very well put. Uh, John O'Rourden says the bourgeois family and proletarian family of Marx and Engels' time have both largely been abolished. Free public schooling, social services, abolition of child labor, legal gender equality and nurseries have socialized childcare completely, undermining old forms of family as a unit of social organization. Free, high-quality childcare would also be a positive step that contributes towards quote-unquote abolition as well. As a form of social organization of property, in advanced economies, the family has been completely undermined. Think, think of things like inheritance tax. And it continues to abolish itself in myriad ways. I don't know what these people are smoking. Um, it seems like anybody can get a book deal of verso if they say the right stupid slogans eh, historically. The point I want to illustrate is that it's not all the abolition that's occurred uh but let me rephrase that. The point I want to illustrate is that uh, all the abolition that's occurred hasn't all been bad. Uh, the author has just ignored all the dialectically bad parts, the Marxist accelerationist argument for abolition of the family, and misunderstood the good bits. To be honest, you guys downplayed the good bits in your understandable outrage at what she said. Yeah, I tend to, I'm sympathetic to what uh, General Rodin is saying here. I tend to agree. Uh, I'd only say, though, you know, I precisely on the grounds that he says that, you know, so much of the family unit, what it used to do traditionally, even in the, you know, modern period of the 19th century and first half of the 20th century, that even that has been socialized to such a great extent that um, there isn't, you know, I mean, what would you, what would you kind of need to make the case for socialization really anymore? I think rather it's about, um, you know, kind of realizing the extent of that socialization properly, which is to say actually kind of providing free high quality childcare 
um, realizing the extent to which so much of our um, social life is, you know, indeed uh, socialized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Richard R. Uh, adds, if excellent episode, though vulnerable to the criticism that Sophie Lewis makes for a handy straw man, um, straw woman, instead of angles or firestone as ro- more robust targets. It seems like a missing piece from your criticism that no one, Lewis included, is even really going out of their way to define the family. We want to offer people, I would think, freedom from certain kinds of stupid, meaningless commitments in order to have the freedom to commit to what they actually value. The problem of the wage relationship is that it becomes the principal commitment against which all others are measured and which has been used to sever all others. Well put as well, and I think that tallies quite well with John O'Rourden's comment. Um, finally, yeah, Willie- but it's... No, just to jump in here a little bit, I guess the the point that we, or the reason why we were discussing Sophie Lewis and not Engels or Firestone is because that's the contemporary expression of these ideas. And I think we made this point in in the episode that, you know, there's, there's, there is a history to family abolition and the fact that the claims are being made today um, in a different context um, than they were made previously by Engels or Firestone and with a different kind of emphasis and all this sort of thing. This is, you know, this is significant, and it speaks to, you know, maybe that idea of wanting to fly to the future. If you don't have the, if you don't have the the ability to make the changes that that you want, then kind of demanding the endpoint is a, is is one, you know, is one approach or one kind of um, cope, you might say. Um, but of course, the you know, in order to for the the family to be abolished in the sense of having something that supersedes it, that's a whole that's a much wider project than just like telling your parents to, to go, you know, to go fuck themselves and all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I think it is, you know, you've got to deal with the, with the way that these claims are are put forward um, today. You can't, I mean, there is some value in looking historically, but I think there's in some ways more at looking at the contemporary expressions of, of, um, of these ideas, I'd say. Right. Um, just one final comment, critical one. William Bell says, if anyone had actually explained the fucking argument the author puts forward, rather than all of you simply snarking against it for hours, this might have been a decent listen. But you didn't, and it wasn't. Sorry, William. Um, but yeah, we should we should try to, and we do try to set up the argument before um, kicking it down. Um, but if we weren't there, um, apologies. We will try better, try harder next time. Right. Um, next, a very popular episode, Don't Do the Work, with Ben Hickman, which was a Philip's interview with him, episode 344. David says, man, I really appreciated this episode. I've offered some, hesita- some hesitancy in some left groups on going all in on work from home and some caution around what it means for atomization and unionizing efforts. And I've been met with consistent and absolutely unhinged rage. I'm glad I'm not alone. Um, some questions on... Um, Arendt, which is caught me by surprise, but yeah, indeed, that was discussed, um, Hannah Arendt. So John thought Arendt was um, butchered in um, Ben Hickman's account, and Rand Heilbrunn had comments on this too, which were as follows. The part on Arendt sounds very fuzzy. The Arendtian moment of recent decades is no doubt related to the retreat of Marxism, and Arendt herself clearly misinterpreted Marx's theory of labor. But it seems to me that Hickman's arguments are actually deeply consistent with hers. Arendt's concept of labor roughly corresponds to the notion of housework, that is, the private repetitive maintenance of our bodily existence. And her concept of work roughly corresponds to the old category of craftsmanship. Her point is that under conditions of modern mass society, 
meaning the industrialization of production and the rise of consumerism, the distinction between these notions disappeared and the category of work was essentially subsumed under the category of labor. When Hickman is saying that we're getting closer and closer to wage work becoming more and more like housework, he is saying the exact same thing. The atomization of the collective aspects of work, the erosion of the boundary between the private and the public, these are precisely the things that she talked about. The anti-socialist aspect of her argument is that she thinks that Marx and the workers' movement are complicit in this process of the degradation of work vis-à-vis labor, whereas a Marxist would say that this is an outcome of Marxism's defeat. Arendt wants to restore the lost dignity of the active life, which is a category that includes work, together with labor and action. To say that the book is based on a fear of work is really to misunderstand the most fundamental aspect of her philosophical project. So I... I mean, I'm very intrigued by these um, comments. Um, and, you know, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, really they need to be put to to Ben in response to his claims about Arendt. And it seems to be a fundamental, you know, question of how you interpret her. I have to say, I'm, I'm still kind of sympathetic, you know, I mean, so, you know, I confess I didn't, um, that I didn't revisit her writings um, in preparation for this. But I have to say, I was, you know, based on what I recall, um, I do, you know, I would kind of align with um, with Ben Hickman's arguments on Arendt more than I would with um, Heilbrunn or Jenna Rordan's on this one. You know, it does seem to me that essentially her argument was um, even kind of, uh, even being as generous as one could to it, it still seems to me that it's based on this essential kind of disgust for what's entailed in modern industrial production and a disdain for it and that she very much wants to keep her idea of modern politics um, separate from questions of modern labor. And that is a very kind of deliberate attempt to firewall her um, analysis of politics and her political claims from, um, you know, I suppose, contamination or susceptibility to Marxist critique so that she defines work in this... um, in this snooty way, you know, and that seems to me entirely consistent with the kind of the reverence for um, for the Greeks, you know, the kind of classical conception of politics as all this kind of speechifying in the agora. So, yeah, anyway, I mean, I leave it, I suppose, you know, perhaps there'll be more debate about Arendt in the forum and in the comments and so on. Um, and I, you know, I'm willing, obviously, to defer to those who know her work better than me. Um, but I remain, I think I, I remain, uh, I still remain more persuaded by Ben's account of Arendt than I do by the one that's been put forward um, in the comments. Okay, so more about, uh, well, the concrete aspects of work, which is um, Tacitus Kilgore relates their experience with blue and white collar unions in Philadelphia and how a lot of blue collar unions support candidates who favor things like stop and frisk policing. So Tacitus Kilgore says, To me, a corrupt middle-class union that has generally the right stance on policing and incarceration would be a blessing compared to my reality, even if they have a frustrating idea of what constitutes anti-racism and don't do much for their members' interests in the workplace. I think that these phenomena ultimately represent two sides of the same coin of unions in the West, being assimilated into the governance structure through a bargain with labor that can slowly be chipped away at. It seems that unions with a more liberal disposition tend to be narrowly focused on members' pet issues, and generally ineffective at functioning to the benefit of the members' interests, while conservative unions focus on the members' material interests, even to the detriment of labor more broadly. In both cases, unions no longer represent a vehicle toward a better future, 
nor are they connected with a more broadly solidaristic worldview for most of their members. I mean, I have to take a, a kind of some exception to this, I think, because the, the the way it's set up is you have middle class unions, but who are politicized and working class unions, which just are workerist or economistic and just defend their workers' interests, but have bad politics, you know, maybe bad conservative politics. Um, and I mean, ultimately, the, the point of, of trade unions is to defend their workers' interests primarily and not pursue kind of the pet issues. So I think um, it's almost a, a sort of category error. Um, but also the idea that unions should be um, concerned with pursuing, these aren't the terms in which this commenter has said it, but in pursuing pro-social outcomes um, seems completely misguided because it's it's not a, a charity which is kind of there to to do good acts, um, but is there to defend its members' interests and to, and, and in a broader sense, um, act in solidarity with other unions to increase working class power. Um, none of that has anything to do with like, you know, kind of backing good policies or backing kind of the right democratic candidate. So it seems to kind of rather miss the point. Okay, and finally, um, several others said they were delighted to hear the um, outtake snippet um, with me and Phil arguing about the extent to which climate change represents an urgent matter. Um, I'm not sure if it was, you know, so much arguing and shouting at each other. But anyway, how rare it is to hear such basic yet therefore profound kinds of debate, comments one. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm not sure I agree. It was just like two two grouchy people just shouting at each other and just being just not listening. You know, why can't That's... sometimes sometimes <laughs> I sometimes I think you have two ears to listen and one mouth to speak um that's what i do sometimes think but you that's... guys were just like not listening to what the other one was saying and just shouting <laughs> welcome to podcasting george welcome to podcasting yeah. right so to conclude this episode of Outfit Bonus Bonus, we have, um, well, a whole bunch of comments on who is the new elite, episode 345 with Matt Goodwin. Okay, well, this was controversial as expected. Um, many, many comments. We're going to have to take a selection of them. JK, JK, JK says, Matt makes some good points, but my issue with his analysis of the Tory-Brexit hybrid coalition isn't that the Tories were insufficiently conservative but that they relied too much on a Brexit, on a Brexit, on Brexit as a glue to their coalition. At the end of the day, Brexit isn't an ideology. It was a discrete political act that grew increasingly popular and safe from overturn over time. As the risk of overturn and the need to litigate the issue and precise dealings of the pullout fades away, and coincidentally as COVID became the new political issue du jour, the ability of Brexit to act as a major glue of political constituencies and driving force of politics evaporated. I think that's true, it's, though. I suspect you might have something yeah, to add, guys. It's true, only to say that, um, yes, Brexit, I wanted Brexit to be an ideology, and yeah, I'm still well, doing my best to try and make it no, an ideology. I, so. I disagree with this comment, um, actually. I think it's not It's not quite correct. Um, it was more that the, the way the Tories understood Brexit and the way that they understood or couldn't grasp national sovereignty, um, essentially, I think there's there's a bit more to it um, than this, but I do. I, I guess the the point that the Tories weren't they were insufficiently conservative. They could never have they could never have dealt with that democratic energy from from Brexit. That was never going to happen. Um, and I think you know 
don't want to we don't want to say told you so but some of us saw this coming quite oh, quite a while ago um that it, that brexit would would lead to the destruction of the tories just as it had previously labor so yeah but i think um the, the tory coalition for them to sustain it it would have been it would have required them to be a very different party that um they were never realistically going to be able to be yeah i mean it only works when it's when you have remainers contesting brexit to be like the brexit party but once brexit's done then you've got nothing um so um moving on to uh the stuff about well more about the new elite i guess uh crocodile the lyle says i wasn't really a huge fan of this one i found that goodwin was too emotionally affected by the exclusion of other views by this new elite to be a compelling commentator that is to say just too too driven by the being annoyed at the orthodoxy of the new elite um carson h says this is the least insightful guest in recent memory by a long shot there are a million droning tory idealists just like him Nye Edwards says, completely facile. Aside from the lack of political utility, which I believe the hosts acknowledged on here, endlessly discussing the different ways in which woke people are annoying has become the most banal intellectual activity imaginable. The fact such intellectual paperweights as Matthew Goodwin and whoever those two hysterical Geordies you had on recently are, the ones talking about it surely shows this. Please talk about literally anything else. It's a question of good taste in the conservative sense more than anything else. Elias says, you know, I'm about as anti-PMC as Phil is. I absolutely fucking loathe them. But ultimately, this episode promised power, values, and class, and in the end, only really talked about values. If we accept the PMC being a quote-unquote new elite, what is their relation to production? What is their relation to politics? And how do they wield power beyond mere ideology and discourse? This episode was an enjoyable bit of fluff, but didn't address any of these real questions. Andrew Mountford says it's telling that Corbyn relegated Corbynism and Starmerism into the same into the same PMC leftist category. Yet the response of these elites to the possibility of actual social democratic economic agendas has been swift and decisive. Now, maybe that's a reference to something we were discussing earlier about about Corbynism. But anyway, uh, Richard R says the focus on teachers, social workers, lawyers, professors, doctors, and so forth is nothing but reflexive impotence, plain and simple. No one wants, or even seems to believe it is possible, to build parties, rebuild civil society, or fight monstrously large corporate and governmental power. So they focus on someone they see on their daily or monthly basis. Politically useless, but it still gives that special jojo of resentment that makes the also mostly PMC people criticizing other regular people feel momentarily powerful. Eli S. then responds to this, saying, Being fair, annoying PMC types are in many cases the first obstacle one encounters while setting out to build a party rebuild civil society, and so on. Richard R. then retorts, and I'm coming to the end of this interchange here, but uh, retorts that the PMC are only your first obstacle if you start to change, in the, if you start your change in the ideological realm. If you start with a protest, then the first obstacle is the police. Or if you start with a neighborhood council, then your first obstacles are usually landlords. Or if you start with a workplace, your first obstacle is the boss. It's time to it's high time we stop mistaking our low-ranking petty bourgeois obstacles for some fundamental and special clash class each time it grows a new head. The actual bourgeoisie still exists and they live far away from anywhere we can touch and travel by private jet and helicopter. Convenient targets make for lazy politics. One uh, comment which I think um, maybe tries to move beyond this um, and point out that well, maybe that there are two elites, um, is a comment by SeaWorld or Bust. The, distinct, the distinction between ownership and sovereignty is one of the distinctive innovations of bourgeois modernity. 
So I'm really not sure why people have such a trouble conceiving of the idea that there might be two different strata of elites. The crisis of the early 20th century collapsed that distinction to varying degrees under the varying forms of what Pollock called state capitalism. So we have fascism, Keynesian liberalism, and Soviet state socialism. However, as those social orders have collapsed, the distinction has re-emerged in slightly altered configurations, with its sovereign component forced to adapt to its new relatively diminished role. The ways in which sovereignty has evolved are potentially interesting, in particular the apparently greater role of civil society, and in particular the cultural sphere, though at the same time let's not overstate this. Overall, I don't think this distinction is nearly as novel as Goodwin or the various antecedents he mentions tends to assume, nor as confusing as the members of this supposedly new elite pretend it is when they're named as such. Um, Richard R. responds to this saying, I don't know, it seems like a pretty pathetic idea of sovereignty to call a bunch of hungry, desperate gremlins who can't even secure a guarantee of public funding for public health in 40 years of trying, quote-unquote, sovereign. SeaWorld or Bust then retorts saying, if they're that feckless and unimportant, then I'd submit that they're even less worth talking about than I'd argued previously. But while it may be true that their influence is waning, I think you're still vastly overestimating that irrelevance, in part because you're taking far too narrow a view of who the sovereign elite actually are. It's not just Owen Jones and friends, and never has been. The idea that the sovereign elite has ever cohered around as clear and explicit a goal as universal health care, or what you seem... Uh, a goal is universal health care, or what have you, seems a bit historically naive. It's not as though the establishment of the NHS, for instance, which arguably happened at the zenith of liberal state capitalism, and thus sovereign elite influence in the liberal West, was somehow accomplished without political contestation between different factions of sovereign elite. Intra-elite dynamics have always been more complicated than that. You're just hyper-focusing on a particular subsection of the sovereign elite because they are, admittedly, particularly annoying. But in contrast um, to, to all this, um, Richard uh, de Silo says, the new elite came on mass to cry here. <laughs> um, Richard R. writes another later comment saying, I'm going to risk undermining all my other commentary above, but I think it's worth it. It's hard to ignore how much people are piling on in this episode and the likely average graduate reading level of the audience of this show. A lot seems to turn on the question of whether or not this somewhat incoherent class, i.e. this quote-unquote new elite, is acting as a class or even able to conceive itself as a class. Richard R. then concludes, they, the new elite, all team up and are mean to the same guys on Twitter and mostly vote for the same guys, despite the likely reality that the teacher considers themselves a socialist and the publicist would vehemently distance themselves from socialist ideas. So Richard R. asks, does a class need to be conscious of itself as a class to exert dominance and power? And if not, wherefore working class disarray? One final comment, um, again, um, critical of Goodwin and critical of the idea that, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, intellectual workers are the actual elite. Carson H. says, for sure, those who hold the reins of society and culture like to gather in the comments section of this highly obscure podcast. Yeah, well, that's obviously wrong because this podcast isn't highly obscure. So Carson H is, we just can't accept that comment, I'm afraid. Um, uh, so, I mean, let me let me maybe give the first cut at responding to some of these comments. And as Alex said, I mean, this is kind of a cross-section of some of them. Um, Patreon subscribers, listeners will be able to see the full kind of, um, you know, the full kind of length of them on the Patreon itself. Uh, 
what I'd say is, I suppose, I mean, I was a bit taken aback by the extent of the commentary on this episode because it didn't seem to me that Matt Goodwin, uh, my former colleague from the University of Kent, was saying anything that was especially novel, either with respect to, um, you know, intellectual history, and he freely kind of admitted the antecedent kind of set of thinkers who'd who've engaged this and who he kind of, you know, he talked about their influence on him, or indeed stuff that we've talked about on this podcast. So, um, you know, I mean, I think that's that's worth mentioning. I mean, the stuff, you know, we've talked about Christopher Lash. We've had guests on to talk about Christopher Lash. Uh, Michael Lind, who uh, talks in similar terms, but with different, uh, you know, he talks about the overclass. And he made very similar points, right? He talks about how the professional managerial strata has kind of fused with the Silicon Tech Valley oligarchs. They And he says they go to the same universities in the States. They even dress the same. They have the same kind of cultural um, outlooks. And so they're very much kind of uh, acting politically that they act in unison. So, you know, and all I'm saying is that it doesn't seem to me that anything that was discussed was particularly different from comments, you know, or discussions we've had before on the pod. So that's the first point. The second point I'd say is... Um, I and this I goes I guess it goes cuts to the heart of the questions. So in response to I think, you know, it was Richard R's um concluding kind of thoughts where he risks undercutting his previous comments, I think it gets to the nub of the matter. So he says, you know, they do act, they do all act in the same way. So there does seem to be some kind of political um conformity and unity there. There does seem to be some kind of ideological and political cohesion. Even if, like he says, you know, they might think of themselves as very different from existing kind of holders of power. Um, And, you know, I'd say this has been born, you know, it's certainly been born out in my recent experience. You know, I've been attending academic workshops and I'm consistently struck by how much um, very kind of senior and high powered academic figures um, who are advisors to governments and international organizations and so on. are very coherent and consistent in the kinds of politics and ideologies that they espouse. And that also seemed to me to, you know, reflect their particular political and social position. However, right. So he says, Richard R. Does a class need to be conscious of itself to a class as a class to exert dominance and power? I think that's only the case in, or only necessarily the case in, in the instance of capitalists and labor. Um, that for them, they need to be conscious of themselves of a class in order to exert dominance and power. It isn't necessarily the case for others. And again, this is a point we've made before, but that the PMC or however you want to call them, they've expanded to fill the vacuum that's left by the absence of um, traditional class contestation between labor and capital. And at the same time, you know, they're, they're insane. I mean, they're not a class that is capable actually of leading society or even allowing it to function effectively. And so unsurprisingly that they, you know, they kind of go crazy and are incapable of realizing their own, the extent of their own power because they occupy that status by default, by the retreat of the two major classes of capitalist society, capital and labor. So I think the dominance of the PMC is consistent with the character of class co- of you know class relations in modern society, and it's also consistent with a particular form that PMC rule. If you want to kind of talk about it in those terms, you know, as awkward as it might be, it's consistent with the form that it takes as well. 
Yeah, I think there's there's something in in that definitely um, what you said there, Phil. Although I did I did note the point that you were like, oh yeah, I'm I'm continually amazed by people's um, ideas reflecting their social and political positions. Like, really, are you kind of this naive, like, um, oh, I've I've read all this Marx, and oh, actually, it is it is true in the in the real world. Um, well, but, perhaps perhaps I'm naive. It was it's more that there is no kind of um, they. You know, for people who are so highly educated that they don't even make an effort to kind of disguise it. I suppose that's well, what's strange. They assume that you think the same thing. And so there is a way Indeed, that they're, yeah. you know, in 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 saying the the quiet part loud, um, in in the rooms um that you're that you're in, um, for, for whatever reason you happen to be there, that's that is a good way to to bring that group of people together. They can then appreciate their their commonalities and you know that that is helpful for them acting as a group but no i think that the more serious point that i had was that there is you know there's clearly been this um you know this episode it's not the first time we've talked about these ideas you know we talked about the clerisy um with joel Kotkin, obviously P- pmc with Catherine liu and a bit of the transfer act with malcolm chayune and i think you know there is there is we're still at a relatively uh, probably earlier stage than we we should be perhaps in this kind of theorizing this new like what is the what is the role of this or what is the role of this new class if it is a class how does it get its ideas what explains the kind of the constraints under which it it operates but i think there is clearly um a situation now which you know if you you might even if you're a weberian like if you take the marxist approach yep the so there's something about the you know this 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 void or this gap into which the PMC maybe have have entered. But in the, the Weberian analysis, you'd have class status and and party. So you'd have class, economic, um, party, political, and then you know status, cultural forms of power. And you could say yeah, the political class or the kind of the organised um, political kind of um, expression of power and the 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 class one um, have changed in very significant way so maybe now it is that kind of cultural forms of power which are from a Faberian position are are kind of more important and you would say maybe it is these these mangoes I think Alex this is the term that you've been that you've yeah. been uh, p- putting forward so media arts academia and NGOs so is that pronounced mango or mango um, I'm not sure collapse the the both a's into one a okay the mango um or you could call it a mango I mean that, that actually might be worse um but yeah so maybe that's the place to look rather than calling i guess the, the i guess all of this uh, is very very long-winded response from me saying that this this word elite i think is one that i find myself using a lot and i should use a bit less because yeah. there are other ways to like it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shorthand and it's important what that shorthand is shorthand for because that's that is significant and maybe it's mangoes or maybe it's pmc or maybe it's something else but in each case you are put you are expressing a kind of a a vision of politics and a model and it's you know the more that you can explain what you're really saying rather than saying elite um probably the better yeah i mean I, i totally agree with that last point i think part of the um the way that people get irked by this conversation is by the use of elite and being kind of unclear on what exactly it means and people kind of going, well, you know, I might be PMC, but I'm not elite. Um, and I think, so to, to respond to, I guess, two of these threads, one, the question of, um, you know, the attenuation of 
traditional class struggle between proletariat and bourgeoisie and the growing role of the PMC in that void. I think that's an important point. But I think what also happens in so doing is a displacement of questions onto the onto the cultural realm, cultural in the broadest sense. And that includes kind of um, bureaucracies and institutions which deal with effectively non-economic matters. So a lot of the critique of the PMC is for the cultural um, and ideological role they play. But, but the question of money, of making money, of production, gets it's completely sidelined in that discussion, and which is why it gives a certain sense of unreality. Because if you're saying that the PMC or the elite, you're kind of going, yeah, okay, but ultimately we live in a capitalist society in which, you know, to put it in the most vulgar way possible, you know, money ultimately determines things. And these are people who aren't dealing with money at all. They're in, largely speaking, in large corporations, so they're not directly exposed to the market, or in um, completely non-market organizations, you know, think like uh, NGOs, foundations, academia, etc. Um, things where they're not kind of trading in money, they're not dealing with money. And so that that makes it seem like, well, hang on, the rest of the world is all dealing with money. And these people are like this, you know, Mandarin hey, class who don't deal with it. And like, okay, mm-hmm. but how are these I hate to break elite? it to you. PMC people still use money. They often exchange it for goods and services. No, no, but um, I mean, but like glib comments aside, like it, it, there's they they're not people at the coal face of the market. Whether that is you know financiers or workers or petty bourgeoisie selling their you know kind of running small businesses, those are people you know at the coal face of the market. And then you've got this class of people who are you know kind of doing arts and woke shit and whatever, and it's all a bit kind of irrelevant to the real matter of power, which is ultimately rooted in money. So I think that's part of the reason that people kind of get confused about this. The other thing is what George was already hinting at in terms of the use of the word elite. And I remember um, Ken and Malik relatively recently commenting on um, and making a comparison between Catherine Liu's work and Matt Goodwin's because, um, um, excuse me, um, Ken and Malik says that um, Liu never at one point pretends within her book, Virtue Hoarders, this critique of the PMC and their hoarding of virtue. She never con- she never says that they're a new ruling class. They're just annoying and are bad for um, kind of working class democratic politics very often. Um, and that's indeed the case. But that doesn't mean that they're a new ruling class. And I think that's the thing that needs to be sort of unpicked and distinguished. Yeah, but he doesn't say. I mean, that's the point, right? I mean, Matt Goodwin doesn't say they're a new ruling class. He says, he says they're, they're a new elite. elite. Well, yeah, okay, but, that's but then people not a ruling people under- class. Okay, but people understand elite to be ruling class. Well, so I think there might yes. be. There, it's a bit boring, but we might need to define terms. You well, know, like- indeed, there's terminologies here that are being used in different ways, right? It seems to me elite is legitimate to use in the current context because it's a regression from class. Right in a context in which you have um, you don't have uh, kind of politically self-conscious organs of capital and labor in the way that you did in the past, uh, and I it's think much it, oh, sorry, more. Sorry, be politically self-conscious organs of capital. I mean, you know, we were talking about the World do. Economic Forum. That's a politically no, self-conscious but it's, organ no, of capital. No, it's not though. It's not. I don't think it is. In fact, I think it is. In fact, a symptom of the uh, regression of the capitalist class is precisely that they um, organize themselves in those kinds of well, forums. The confederation, indicates. the confederation of British industry, um, the central bank. I hate to break all... it to you. I hate to break it to you, Alex, but the confederation of British industry is dissolving itself, even as we speak. So that would actually prove my point. Okay, anyway, before I, don't I was know Britain, rudely, in, in, in Britain, before in I was some... rudely interrupted, before I was rudely interrupted, I was making the point right that I think elite is a legitimate way to talk about ruling, kind of an influential, authoritative. Um, 
fractions and groups. Um, and it's consistent with the kind of classical Marxist politics precisely because we don't confront the circumstances of classical Marxist politics and society at the moment, right? So I don't accept. I think the point about the... Um, the point about the WEF is precisely that it's not built on generalizing the World Economic Forum, Alex, while you're no spazzing away with the camera. People do say WEF. No one says WEF. That's ridiculous. Let's not say WEF. I, it's not anyway, nice. the point being, the point being that it is that failure to um, win support for, um, you know, to win support for capitalism in a popular um, a national form that is itself telling of the failure of capitalist rule, right? That's the point. So the retreat of capitalism from the nation state, I think, is itself evidence of the failure of the capitalist class, right? Um, anyway, the point, so my point is this, right? That I don't think it's um, some terrible kind of um, lexical or indeed kind of substantive theoretical crime to talk in terms of elite, it can be overused and it can be very loose, but I think we confront a circumstance in which traditional, I mean, that's the premise of our show. We might be wrong, right? But we can't deny that it's the premise of our show, that traditional class politics doesn't apply. And so in that context, we need to find other terms to capture this, uh, the dynamics of rule, rulers and ruled. So I have um, something to add on to this. This idea of class struggle without classes, which we've talked about before, but I keep coming back to, and I haven't got a good positive model, but this is um, you know, E.P. Thompson's idea, which I'm going to mispronounce his name again, even though I've, I've really tried not to. Ruhi, Ruhi Braha. Is that close enough? Ruhi Braga. What, that, that dude, um, his, his, his piece, which t- takes this um, um, idea from E.P. Thompson, who says, you know, before there's class struggle, before there's there's classes. Um, and so if you go back to 18th century um, England, you know, you have these, you have the plebs and the gentry. They're not classes, they're, they're basically bandit groups or they're kind of, you know, elite isn't the right idea, but it's like people who share material interests, which are, de- which are developing into a class. Maybe this applies today. And maybe elites is, is therefore um, elites or bandit groups, uh, you know, are two different terms, but they get the same thing that, it isn't, you know, if classes compose themselves, they can decompose. And so maybe this is the situation we're in. But just to go back to the point that you made about, you know, people not at the cold face of um, of the market, I think that's a good way to put it, Alex, you know, in in the sense of, you know, there, is, there are people who um, only come into, and this is Jakubowski's way of putting it, only come into contact with the basic phenomenon of capitalism, that is the commodity in circulation, not in production. And this gives them a, a whole like view of the world or it determines their view of the world entirely and that is the you know the middle classes who are not the capitalists who are not proletariat so and they can have you know depending on the the relative position of the of the major classes in capitalism a potentially pretty you know pretty big role to play so i mean i guess i guess i'm i think it was one of the more controversial episodes that we've had, but a good a good discussion with Phil and I uh, with Phil with that Phil had with with Matt Goodwin, and I think the book is is good as well. So I'm, I was sort of surprised. I didn't think listeners would um, <laughs> would would uh, dislike it quite as much as um, as they did, and maybe you know maybe it was on it's on us to kind of take forward some of those um, criticisms in the you know the way we've just been discussing it and try and develop a you know what is our bunger our bunga theory of um, if we're part of the new elite, surely we should be elite enough to to come up with a, a kind of a, an elite theory of some sort. 
elite is in a very good theory yeah of no, the elite. Absolutely. elite theory absolutely. of the elite yeah, exactly. Okay. That's that's what we should aim for. Um, we could continue. Um, I'm sure we, all three of us could continue this for, for quite a while, but we won't do this here. We'll do this um, another time. Or maybe, you're, maybe you want to tell us that actually I don't want to ever hear about this again, which, you know, or maybe we should just position. stop recording and start shouting at each other off. off um, well, off also, we, we, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a bit tired. Otherwise, I would definitely I, I have things to shout at. I'm going to have things to shout at Phil. Just I'm staring at his face there. I just want to shout at him. <laughs> why is that Alex? that's that's why a very that? understandable and common reaction to seeing phil's face <laughs> anyway yeah. let's let's uh true. let's conclude this um Your we've had more likes comments my face. we've had more comments than um we could possibly <sighs> deal with grief. as we always do um and so um we necessarily have to kind of edit it if we didn't kind of give a shout out to your point or question apologies but um we couldn't possibly do it all if um you know if we do these a little bit more frequently hopefully we can try to take more of the comments but in any case do let us know what you think thank you once again for um engaging so enthusiastically um whether negatively or positively with uh, what we do with what our guests have to say and the conversations that we try to host on here to try to um untangle the wires of the end of the end of history but that's it from us for now catch you later Bye bye yeah i mean i, I guess I, I understand that people are like i'm a teacher how am i elite like what what the fuck are you talking about you know which i think is a lot how, how people <laughs> but i raised this with matt goodwin i said to him right you know like the guy who's living in a small apartment whose parents are wealthy but the wealth is like as a result of asset inflation and it's all locked up with yeah, parents just middle class like yeah. Houston. yeah but well but you know it's very specific context and i put this so it's not you know it's not like you know and he had a response to it as well you know no one kind of no one really addressed it in the comments he had a response to it that those people are uh, yeah, influential they get true. to influence kids you know or they yeah, get to okay, write okay okay they're not no, they're but not, look, they're not they're nobody's, more they're not they're nobody's not, but no, but they're more influential than, say, you know, kind of people who are just working class, right? No, I mean, for sure. But no, but no one's saying that they're, they're no one's saying that they're the same as the working class. The point is that they're not the same as top financiers, top politicians, top bureaucrats, etc. Well, indeed, but they underestimate their own power and influence. I mean, that's the point, right? Academ I mean, so I can certainly say academics do it all the time. But an academic is way more influential than a teacher. You know, that's different. Like an academic, but that they're, they're, they're a they're a group. That's coherent. I mean, yes. and this is the thing: we didn't talk yeah. about Brexit, we didn't talk about COVID, but I, I mean, we've got this um, petty bourgeoisie event with um, Dan Evans and Catherine, and you know, that's a point that I kind of want to make without. Actually, do we want to advertise that? Do we want to? Yeah, you should say. Oh, that, Alex, we've still got the tape rolling, actually, so we're going to keep this in. And um, George, why don't you tell us what the tell people what the event is? Oh, um, I should get all the details right now, because <laughs> if if people turn up at the um, at the wrong t time or place, then well, well, George looks I that do, up. It, I can also tell you that the information is in the latest um, kind of newsletter uh, post that we did at the end of May, beginning of June, um, telling you what was coming up this month. But um, I think it's just in a matter of days. So actually, I don't know if, they, if this episode is going to come out it's, in time. It's right. Wednesday, the twenty eighth of June, seven p.m. Um, you can it's at, it's through Houseman's, which is the the bookshop in in London with Dan Evans and Catherine Liu. Um, in, it's in North London. Um, it's not at the bookshop, but the details if you go to the bookshop website are there. And in fact, this episode might have come out by no, then. It won't. So it'll, it'll come. It'll come. This episode's coming out on Tuesday. That's on Wednesday. So um, it'll be tomorrow for you, listener. If you go along and uh, check that out, do say hello. 
if you do come listener um to that event it, it should be good yeah we'd be talking about the professional managerial class and their politics so dan's got his book on uh, petty bourgeoisie catherine hers on uh, virtual orders as previously mentioned so yeah we'll have a good discussion